Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Every, everything comes back to, you know, you've got good people, amazing people, sometimes, working in organisations that end up on the wrong side of litigation and enforcement. And we know that it's not that those people are doing a bad job, it comes back to culture and, and you know, um, senior management and the board being willing to say we're going to forego some profitability to run a long-term, sustainable, well-run business. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor of the GRC Institute. And today we have with us, I think for the first time for a podcast, Nathan Lynch, Head of Financial Crime and Risk at Thomson Reuters in Asia Pacific and author of the new book, The Lucky Laundry. Hi, Nathan. Welcome. Hey, Kwame. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here at last, at long last. Great <laughs> to be on your show. So we're having a bit of a chat because your book, I think, was just launched last month. And um, confess, have not finished it just yet, just because I'm a bit of a slow reader when it comes to books like this, because you want to make sure that you get everything just right. But I thought this would be a good chance to have a bit of a chat uh, just about the process around this book, the research that you did, um, maybe some revelations that you had while writing this book, things you didn't expect to find. Um, but I'm going to get started right at the beginning. Um, titles are important. We're literally just talking about the importance of titles. And it just it's just quite funny because the original um, The Lucky Country thing was a book what, about, about 60 years ago. It was a bit of a candid compliment. You even talk about it at the beginning of the book um, that has sort of taken on positive, I guess, connotations over the years. And you've taken it back to that backhanded, uh, maybe not even a compliment anymore. Talk about coming up with that title to begin with. Yeah, thank you. Uh, look, it, uh, I'll try not to do too many spoiler alerts given that you <laughs> haven't finished, but uh, yeah. it, it, I'll, I'll, all I'll say at this point is neither the good goodies nor the baddies totally win. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, in terms of the title, I mean, Donald Horn was such a great writer and he really captured this period of Australian history where we had a, you know, economies were very much national and it was before globalisation and, you know, I mean, we were tethered to the UK very much economically, but we sat here sort of in our own isolated, comfortable place. And that was really the basis of the lucky country, you know, where we could get away with bad policy, we could get away with, uh, you know, not really value adding, we could be a primary producer and live really excellent lives. But also, you know, the, the thing behind the lucky country was this idea that we'd been gifted a liberal democracy you know, a, a country with a great system of rules and laws that had come down from the amazing, you know, UK common law tradition. And it was something that was so valuable that Donald Horn thought, uh, you know, we, we as Australians just didn't value it because we'd never had to fight for it. It was it was gifted to Australia with the system of British rule. So that was sort of, uh, you know, taking that forward now and reassessing Australia in this modern era. You know, we're in a globalised economy. Our, our economy is sort of like a cork bobbing around in an ocean of GDP and global GDP. And, you know, we are uh, we are not the masters of our own destiny and we really can't get away for too much longer with not value adding on resources and things like that. And most importantly, we can't sit here and let this wonderful liberal democracy die on our watch. 
You know, we don't want to be the generation that says we were too myopic, too greedy, too concerned about our uh, superannuation or our share portfolio or our house values to actually take any tough medicine to ensure that we hand on an Australia in a better condition. So that was sort of the idea behind the lucky laundry. Obviously, for us in the financial crime world, uh, it's, it's a nice bit of alliteration there, but there's a truth behind it, which is if we have all of those failures that Donald Horn was hinting at, and I'm, I'm suggesting have uh, you know evolved but not improved, we will become a sink for the world's dirty money. And once you accept that and say we're going to turn a blind eye, you are really in a Faustian pact where you can't pretend that you're going to take the world's dirty money and maintain this system of of rule of law and integrity and transparency that that is so fundamental to the Australian way of life. So that was sort of the thinking behind the the, the title. Yeah, sure. And I guess my other question really is, who were you aiming? Like, who's your audience that you were thinking of when you were writing this book exactly? This book was very much, this was about taking our little, you know, uh, you know, our, our wonderful industry, the financial crime and GRC and risk and compliance field. It was about taking our industry to a wider audience. You know, uh, you and I write for a professional audience, which is such a privilege because we are writing material uh, for, for a totally sophisticated audience. We're writing for an audience that knows this stuff way better than we do. So you're always aspiring to be better at what you do. You know, I know you're exactly the same in your work. And that's a huge privilege. But at the same time, uh, it is, I, I felt like this whole thing with Austrac stepping up and these big litigation mm. cases, you know, the, the likes of which Australia had never seen before and it might not even see again after this wave of big litigations. So I felt like there was a need to explain what had happened to a broader audience, you know, to get these stories outside our sector. And also to, to you know, there's people within our field that to me are heroes, you know, people that made decisions of integrity people who might have blown the whistle on bad conduct, people that couldn't, uh, you know, uh, if the standard you walk past is the standard you accept, these are people in the book who just couldn't walk past evil or wrongdoing or misconduct. And uh, they're, they're human stories, you know, they, they resonate far beyond our sector. And, uh, you know, that was very much the idea of this book was to wrap all of that up in just some rollicking yarns, you know, starting out with a murder on the streets of Sydney and trying to make sure that the pill was continually sugar coated to keep the reader going, even if they're, you know, even if they're not an enthusiast in in our field. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you started with the, the murder at the beginning of the book, because one of the things I thought you did really well, at least so far where I'm at, is that you've given us a cast of a few characters and used them, as, as you said, even before this recording, as literary devices and giving us little windows into how the system works. Well, why did you choose these particular cast of characters? Yeah, that, that's an awesome question and a very astute reading of the book, Kwame. Uh, look, the you know, people people aren't going to relate to an institution, you know, an institution is what it is. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, institutions, big institutions, uh, stable institutions 
are made up of humans. They're made up of individuals and they are individuals with very human motivations. And quite often at the top of those institutions or agencies, you have a small group of people that are making decisions that can have massive consequences for society as a whole. So it was a really important literary device to take it from the abstract and make it human, make it personal so that we can see that these are human battles. And even, even for people in regulatory roles, you know, they're, they're fighting these battles, these internal battles against massive forces, you know, um, massive amounts of money, uh, massively powerful industries, lobbyists, all of those things. So to be a regulator um, takes a whole lot of courage. To be an anti-money laundering compliance person takes a whole lot of courage. In places like Pakistan and Jordan and, and parts of the Middle East and Southeast Asia, that can potentially carry a death sentence doing that role. So these are people of huge courage doing their jobs. And then on the, you know, on the money laundering side and the criminal side as well, uh, you know, we, we opened the book with Pete Huang because that's a tragic story. You know, this is a tragic tale of a kid who you could argue that he was a result of the blowback from our forays in Vietnam during the 1970s. You know, a kid who's an orphan and he finds his way into Australia and he's a survivor, you know, and and you can't help but empathise with his journey and marvel at his intellect and creativity to be so successful in his chosen profession, which happened to be being a bag man for gangsters. Uh, so all all of these human stories are, are just, you know, that they are amazing tales and, and there's amazing people. And I kind of wanted to use that as an exploration of what, you know, the deeper question that the book kind of asks is how do we how do we end up how we are? How do people make these choices? What what drives someone? Um, you know, we we ask these questions all the time in the GRC field, but, you know, what does make someone make a decision to go either pathway? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm glad in your previous answer where you talked about communicating outside of that professional framework and sort of communicating to a wider audience, because I think when the CBA case broke, I think there wasn't a lot of general understanding of what the implications of that meant. Like when they said they breached the um, Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorism Financing Act this many times, I don't think everybody quite understood, well, what does it matter how many times they breached it? What does that mean? How did it work? What is cuckoo smurfing? What does that term come from? And these are all things that you get into. Um, do you feel that since, um, you know, we've, we've had Tabcorp and then CBA and we've had Westpac and Crown is the one that's been in our papers most recently, do you think that there's probably a better understanding outside of our professional space about what, why this is happening in terms of maybe not a tight enough regulation or maybe breakdown in systems and processes within organisations? Massively. I mean, really, particularly around the uh, the financial crime side. So I think yeah. conduct risk had always been in the public domain because yeah. people are losing money. You know, you've got investor losses that goes all the way back to probably the first time the managed investment scheme was invented. So you, you've had, you know, you've had these cases that have involved ASIC and conduct risk. And of course, we all know about bank runs and the implications of that through, um, you know, from the 1890s uh, financial crisis in Australia all the way through to 2008. So these were in the public domain, but the world of financial crime and financial intelligence was a total mystery to the public. And then 
you know, Tabcorp didn't really put it on the radar no. either. No. But CBA, boy, you know, I mean, at the time, I think it was the biggest company in Australia by market value. And it was certainly a pillar of banking and, and just a, an amazing Australian brand. And that's why in the book I go into that uh, presentation at the Horden Pavilion, you know, where they're holding up all these icons of Australia, like the Victor Mower and the Hills Hoist. And what they're saying there is Commonwealth Bank is one of those Aussie icons. It is. It's true. <laughs> you know, they had, as Ian Narev said, that brought with it certain franchise benefits and huge franchise responsibilities. And unfortunately, they lost sight of the responsibilities that came with commandeering such a powerful brand. So it was the fall of Commonwealth Bank, you know, the first of the big systemically important targets that put this on people's, uh, you know, on, on their TV screens at dinner time. And possibly more importantly, it was the way that the amazing legal team at the Australian Government Solicitor representing Austrac told it in stories you know mm. i mean law and litigation is the warfare of competing narratives and they took these cases and just enlivened them with the the harm you know if you read through that 670 page statement of claim in the cba case it's continually reminding you this was the harm this was not just a computer system that failed this yeah. was the impact and i think uh you know that, that legal team led by Sonia Marsiak is one of the most unbelievable and fearsome legal teams in Australia, and they deserve to be uh, remembered, I think, in Australian history for the role that they play in bringing these massive corporations back within the rails of good conduct. Yeah. Excellent. I absolutely agree with you. Um, and I guess around that time as well, and maybe even just before that time, we also saw um, something that's really interesting. We talked about other regulators and their, their relationships. Uh, and so we saw the, the regulatory ecosystem in, in action, of course, once we saw Australia action against the CBA. And then, of course, we saw APRA and ASIC doing their own investigations um, from their own respective remits on the implications of what that meant for them and what was happening in the space they regulate. But we also, within Austrac itself, we saw the development of the Fintel Alliance, that really interesting public-private partnership, um, which I think, in my opinion, distinguishes Austrac's relationship with its, um, I guess, the regulated entities, very different to what ASIC and APRO's relationship would have with their own regulated entities. Um, and I know that through the relationships, they have been able to share some really good information and conduct some really interesting investigations. But I always wonder, what are the limits of that, especially in an environment, say, something that you mentioned in your book as well, when tranche two is um, not, not legislated as yet? Yeah, I mean, the Fintel Alliance is a fascinating creature and it, it cuts through to that complex dual relationship that Austrac has as financial intelligence unit and regulator. And that's not a common model around the world, you know. So it's it's a model of an agency that really, really works. You know, we do have probably, I'd say, the finest FIU on the planet in, in Austrac. Uh, and, and part of the reason for that is that we have carved it out as a standalone structure. It doesn't sit within a, a central bank and its roles aren't split across multiple agencies, which is a huge, you know, loss of talent and value and 
efficacy. So you've got this amazing agency here in Austrac, and it's a statutory agency. And then with the creation of Home Affairs, it got rolled into the intelligence community. So all of a sudden, Austrac went from being in the Attorney General's department and having to sell its services to other departments and almost market the intelligence products that it created to being fused with the intelligence community. And that was a massive benefit to Austrac. And you could see, if you read between the lines in the statements of claim, you can see that there's a lot of AFP work that found its way into the Austrac claims. You know, it's, it's all there. There's these underlying cases that were prosecuted to a criminal standard and Austrac sort of pulled those together, which was critical because that comes back to that question of harm. Uh, but it also comes back to the issue of collaboration. So you had Austrac there embedded with other agencies like the AFP and ASIO dealing with criminal and terrorist threats. At the same time, you know, you, you have a unique thing in the, so, so now that we're looking at this world of intelligence, you then have this unique arrangement here in Austrac that it's an intelligence agency, part of the intelligence community that is intimately involved with the private sector. All of its intelligence comes from reporting entities and businesses. So it's it has to have these relationships and it has to reach out and it has to form partnerships. So what they did with the Fintel Alliance was a groundbreaking, groundbreaking thing that's being emulated all around the world now. However, it had challenges and one of those challenges was that participants in it were saying well hang on a minute you want us to come into the ring here and be part of the club and tell you our most intimate uh you know uh, details about our business in a trusted relationship but then on the other side of the organization you're slapping us around the federal court so this was a this was a difficult thing for austrac to navigate and it had to be pretty careful with its litigations, you know, that those two arms of the agency, the regulatory and the intelligence side, weren't working cross purposes. I think they I think they navigated that difficult line exceptionally well because those relationships now are stronger than they've ever been. Yep. Uh, and, and settling those cases was a core part of that. I think if it had gone to messy, brutal, protracted litigation, uh, it, it could have been a really messy situation. But thankfully, you know, at the end of the day, who is more interested in tackling and mitigating and managing financial crime than banks, you know? So there is there is a dual purpose there. And Austrac was very clear in saying to management throughout these cases, we want you to be a genuine partner with us here. We have to send a message, but ultimately let's look forward in the collaborative fight against financial crime. And that's where we are now. And that's why, uh, you know, I think the public, in a sense, were baying for banking blood after the, you know, findings of the Royal Commission. But that was never Austrac's objective. Yeah. And, and you know, they stuck to the line with that and that that's to be commended. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, then I guess there are those limits. And it's another character that you bring into the story that I quite find quite fascinating where we see China's approach um, when they're trying to stop those funds from leaking out, getting into Australia, into the real estate, into those other spaces, um, having those bounty hunters looking for those funds and where, those, where that's gone. Do you think, I mean, and I realise I'm bringing the tranche two thing back in here, do you think that having that tranche two within the legislation would really help with that particular part of the problem? where funds would not be able to be hid within those high valued things and through accountants, through lawyers and through real estate. Yeah, that's a that is a 
cracking question that cuts to the heart of the issue, which is how do we have countries like Canada and the United Kingdom and New Zealand that have their equivalent of tranche two, their regulation for DNFBPs in place, and yet they're still being massively abused for the criminal laundering of money through real estate markets. Obviously, you know, things are better there following the introduction of those laws, but it's not perfect by a long shot. Now, I think one of the issues Australia has had with tranche two is that we do have this incredibly effective FIU. And everyone in politics knows that when you turn that, you know, you've, you've got a dog on a leash there in effect, you know, and when you let it loose on those sectors, it's going to do good work. It's going to be effective. And that's why politicians are so scared of implementing these laws. Whereas in some other countries where maybe I'm not I'm not isolating the UK and Canada here, but, you know, in some countries where they don't have really effective, uh, you know, FIUs and AML regulators, they're less worried about the fiscal impact of cracking down on this dirty money because countries want the foreign capital. Yeah. Whatever they say, they, they do want that money uh, to come in. They just want it to be clean and they, they um, certainly don't want the reputational blowback of being a wash house for the world's dirty money. So that's where the Australian government is in a pickle. We've let the housing market grow and evolve and blow up to the point where we sort of have uh, a housing market with a political system attached to it. Yeah. <laughs> and the tail's wagging the dog. And then you've got this agency that's going to kick some goals when it gets loose on those sectors. And everyone in Canberra is petrified. It's a game of hot potato. No one wants to be the politician that brings that in. So, you know, as as we cover in the book, it's passed. Those laws have outlived seven Australian prime ministers. That's a horrific horrific statistic when you think that this has bipartisan support and it also has an international commitment to the OECD and FATF. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think I think when Austrac gets those powers, we're going to see it doing really good work. And that is fundamentally the reason why Tranche 2 has been so problematic in Australia. Yeah. So I'm going to bring it back to maybe term members and some of the organizations as well. We, we spoke about that public-private partnership and how effective it's been. Do you, it, I guess in your conversations with some organizations within Australia, do you find that they have been, that they struggle to follow the, the legislation as it's uh, like meet the obligations of the current legislation? Or has it been something that's been clear? Have they been getting enough information from Austrac to help them meet those topologies? Or are they always asking for more information? What, what are the common themes that you've noticed and challenges and I guess opportunities? For organizations yeah at that granular level it's it is complex unnecessarily complex legislation and also you know the when when it was brought out in 2006 the big voices you know mainly the big banks were the ones pushing for a really principles-based regime smaller entities actually prefer rules-based regulation because they don't have the resources to take advantage of principles-based regulation. So they just want to know what they have to do and get it done and get on with running their business. That's going to be a big part of why Tranche 2 is also scaring politicians, because you've got small businesses that don't have massive compliance overheads that are suddenly going to be burdened with this obligation. So there does need to be, in the regime, a bit of a... You know, we might see this hopefully with 
tranche two in Australia. It's gone back now to the Attorney, Attorney General's Department, and we're hopefully going to see that they bring in something for smaller businesses that's a lot more manageable and maybe more prescriptive. Because look, the current regime is so complex and it's written by people that don't understand the inner workings of banks. And look, let's be honest, Austrac, being a pragmatic agency, used that to its advantage in these litigation cases, you know, getting 53,000 breaches or millions of breaches, uh, you know, which, which is the nature of this. I'm sure the parliament would never have given them the power to fine a bank $200 trillion, for instance. Yes. Um, you know, that, that isn't going to have happened. So uh, what we what we have here really is a regime that needs to be fine-tuned now and it needs to be simplified and it needs to be structured so that, uh, you, you know, organisations that are struggling to comply but really trying to do the right thing, we can't have them being thrown under the bus and and suffering from enforcement action simply because it's too complex and there is a danger of that with with bringing in you know a hundred thousand small businesses in tranche two uh it hasn't been such an in, a problem in tranche one because really the types of businesses that are captured should be able to deal with sophisticated regulation in those sectors but tranche two is a very different creature so yeah well, i guess we watch this space quietly it's going to be really interesting to see how the agd handles it and also i think they'll hopefully use it as an opportunity to clean up some really messy areas like the regulation of international funds transfer instructions which just doesn't work to be frank Okay, an excellent job translating my very messy question just now. Um, <laughs> Good question, I like it. <laughs> uh, well, I feel like we should start wrapping this up a little bit, and I thought it'd be really good um, because we didn't have you for the AML Congress to capture you now and, and get a sense of, do you have any, I guess, words of wisdom, um, bits of advice, if you like, not legal advice if anybody's listening and wants to take this too seriously, um, but just how do you get this right um how does how do organizations get this piece right i mean other than reading your book and seeing the humans behind the stories and seeing how the ecosystem is put together how do they get the compliance financial crime compliance right um in a principle-based system oh look I, I think the first thing to say is that they're doing an amazing job yeah. you know like we, we we have pillars of excellence and you know i'm i'm always happy to point out that ANZ is the one bank that didn't find itself in Austrac's crosshairs. And Austrac turned around and said, you know, in, in response to a formal inquiry because there was, you know, risks of short selling and things like that, ANZ needed to clear this up. So they went to Austrac and then they did a exchange filing saying we are not uh, subject to enforcement or supervision action that we're aware of. So what you have there is an example that it can be done and that it can be done really well. And one of the issues is when it is done well, no one knows about it. Yeah. So, you know, when compliance people and risk people do a really good job, their organisation isn't in the headlines. So it's a kind of a thankless task. Everyone has to be very internally motivated in that sense. But one of the things that I wanted to achieve with this book was to point out that there are huge numbers of people doing amazing work and organisations that are doing incredible things and under the tipping off legislation, they can never, ever talk about 
the great work that they've done alongside agencies like the AFP or the state police or the tax office that is wrapped in a cone of silence under the threat of criminal sanctions. So, you know, these stories do need to be told about organisations that are doing a cracking job and, you know, they're out there. We know that. We see it all the time in our field. And also we need to see that um, it every, everything comes back to, you know, you've got good people, amazing people sometimes working in organisations that end up on the wrong side of litigation and enforcement. And we know that it's not that those people are doing a bad job. It comes back to culture and, yeah. and you know, um, senior management and the board being willing to say we're going to forego some profitability to run a long-term, sustainable, well-run business. And I think that's the bit that was missing from the puzzle earlier and now people in this sector have have it. They can go to their board and it's like, do you want to be the next um person who's sitting before a commission of inquiry yeah. of course not so suddenly it is on it is one of the top um risk priorities in major companies and that's a huge benefit for our industry so you know i mean i think people just need to uh take courage and take solace from the fact that it's hard work you know the people that are doing this really well will tell you it's a difficult line of work. It's You're juggling so many different things and you're dealing with a mercurial foe that's so heavily incentivized to break open your defenses and penetration test your organization. So, you know, these people, they don't wear their underpants on the outside. They don't generally wear capes to work, but they are heroes and they're doing a great job for their organization and for society. And, uh, you know, let, let's, let's celebrate what this industry does. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute and the music was produced by Rob Neary.